Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, Ephesians starts on page 976. And you can go ahead and make your way there. As you're turning there, uh, let me just give you, a, just set the stage a little bit for, for the overall book that we're going to be in. It's the year 62 AD, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's in prison, and, and more specifically, he's under house arrest in Rome. And about five or eight or so years earlier, in the mid-50s, he's on his third missionary journey, and we read about this in places like Acts chapter 19, and he passes through the city of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a port city in what is now modern-day Turkey, the western part of modern-day Turkey. Uh, Ephesus was a wealthy city, a lot of money, a lot of wealth there. It was a, a cultural hub. It was a melting pot of different cultures. It was also the location of something called the Temple of Artemis, uh, which we know today now as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a, it's a famous city. And it doesn't appear that Paul spends a, a very long time in the city of Ephesus. We don't really know how long exactly he's there. It doesn't seem like he's there that long. But as he's imprisoned a few years after that, he writes this letter back to the church there. And you're going to hear in a moment in the introduction, this letter is addressed to the saints, the saints who are in Christ Jesus. And by that, Paul doesn't mean like the varsity team, like the, the best of the best of the Christians. When he says saints, he's really referring to a new identity that has been given to people who have put their faith in Jesus. They're all saints. He's writing to the men and women who have believed in Jesus there. Now, in this letter, um, Paul's going to focus really on two major themes, and you'll hear this then as we go through our series this fall. Um, one of them is that through the work of Jesus, we've been given this new identity. We're, we're new people. We've been given a new family, a new name, a new identity. The other th theme that he focuses on is what it then looks like to live in light of that identity. So that's where we get the title of the series, Called in Christ. On the, on the one hand, we are called to be in Christ. We're called to be among his people. And then we're called to live in light of that. He's going to say in Ephesians chapter 4, live worthy of the calling that you have received. So we're called to be in Christ, and then we're called to live in light of that. That's just a, a big picture kind of overview of where we're headed the next, the next several weeks and months. So today we're starting probably, you know, appropriately so, in Ephesians chapter 1. And I really, uh, I really have appreciated this passage this week personally. Uh, it's been a meaningful passage to me, uh, really, in a, in a personal way this week, because it's been an encouragement to me in these moments, and I've had several of them this week, where I get fixated on and then discouraged by the gaps that exist in my life. You may already know what I mean when I say that, but let me explain a little bit more. Uh, in my life, there are gaps between the ideal and reality. There are gaps between the ideal and, and reality. What I long for and what I'm actually experiencing in, in a given moment. And I'm going to assume that, that, though I'm sure the specifics are different for you and, and in your life and where you find yourself today, that you know what I'm talking about when I say that. that. That you know that there's an area or multiple areas of your life where you feel that gap, maybe even right now as I say that. I mean, we're human, right? We all experience this. There's what, what is more human than to experience a gap between what you long for and what, what reality actually looks like in that moment? Now, for me... Uh, the gaps can be related to the life of Liberty Church. 
Um, I, I'm privileged to do this vocationally. I don't, have, I don't work another job. I'm a, I'm a pastor full-time, so I think a lot about our church. And so sometimes the gaps have to do with where, you know, here's, here's where I wish we were as a church. Here's, here's what I wish um, our, our relationships with one another looked like. Here's what I wish the impact we had in our region looked like. And, you know, back here somewhere is where we actually are. It can also be really personal and individual to me. Uh, here's the kind of husband that I wish I was, that I long to be. Here's the kind of father that I long to be. Um, here's the kind of pastor, you know, the kind of leader, the kind of preacher, the kind of counselor that I long to be. And then somewhere over here, or maybe even like over here, that's like where I feel like I actually am in, in reality. And there's a gap between, between those two things. In those moments where we become focused and fixated on the gaps, what we're doing there is we're thinking constantly about what we lack, about what's not true or what's not there that we, that we wish were there. And if you're like me, when you're in, in seasons like that where you get fixated on those gaps, you lose sight of the beauty of what already has been. And you lose sight of what already is, and you lose sight of what will be. And that's where passages like Ephesians 1 and the first half of Ephesians 1, which we're going to be in today, are just really helpful and really healing and really just good for our souls. Ephesians 1 is completely about the faithful and unfailing work of God. What he's done, what he is doing, what he will do, and how that, what that means for you and me in, in our lives. So this passage, Ephesians 1, it's about the riches of God's grace. It's about the riches of God's grace. And we will find, if, if we will have the ears to hear and the eyes to see, we will find in this text a well that is deep enough to satisfy us, to astonish us, to renew us, to compel us, to envision us, to impassion our hearts in every moment of our lives and then forever beyond that. And when we drink from this well, this well of the riches of God's grace, those gaps, though they're very much still real, you know, they, don't, they don't just go away, though they're very much still real, though they're very frustrating, though they're very painful sometimes, they don't become so crippling anymore. They don't become so, so dominant anymore. And instead, they take their place within the story of God, which is a story, as we're going to see, from eternity past to eternity future, is a story all about this unfathomable abundance of God's grace. So maybe even a better way to, to say it or think about it, when we drink from this well, the gaps stop dictating our lives and God's grace does instead. The gaps stop dictating our lives and God's grace does instead. So I hope that this first half of Ephesians 1 is as reviving for you as it's been for me in the moments when I've needed that this week. Um, so let's just jump into that. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. You can follow along with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And this is God's Word. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, thank You that You commissioned Paul as an apostle and that he writes down this letter that we have access to today. And in it, we just get to see the abundance of Your grace to us. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. And we'll, we're going to struggle, I'm going to struggle, probably for the rest of my life, to actually believe that. Because it's so contrary to the way everything else works. And I so often want to just have a way to earn that somehow. Or just focus on my gaps and throw a pity party. And God, I pray for wherever we find ourselves this morning, every man and woman and child in this room this morning, that you just would, through your word, Speak to our hearts, revive our hearts with this overwhelming flood, this deep, inexhaustible well of your grace. That your grace would truly be the thing that that dominates our perspective and not our gaps and not where we fall short. That those things would just take their place in the story that is a story of your grace. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So there's a lot uh, in this. We could probably spend our, our whole series in like Ephesians 1. We won't, we won't do that. We're, we're just going to look at this really rich text this morning in two parts. We're going to talk about the source and the substance. So the source, where do the riches of grace come from? You know, what's the source of all of this? Every spiritual blessing in Christ, where does that come from? And then secondly, we'll come back and we'll talk about the substance. What are the riches of grace? What, what does it mean that there is every spiritual blessing? So first, let's talk about the source. Uh, These opening verses, these two verses that Paul starts this letter with, it's Paul's salutation. He's kicking off a letter. He introduces himself as the author. Uh, He indicates his intended recipients, these men and women, these people who have believed in Jesus, who live in Ephesus. And then he gives this customary greeting that shows up in various forms in many other letters that we have in the New Testament. And it sounds like this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how customary greetings and words that we use for greetings or departures often lose their meaning over time? perfect example of this is the word goodbye. Uh, If you trace the origin of the word goodbye, you'll find that through most of the, the 16th century, when people would depart from one another's company, they would say to one another, God be with ye which is the old English way of saying, God be with you. Over time, uh, that was shortened into a contraction. 
so lowercase g-o-d-b-w-y-e. And I think you pronounce it the same way. If you don't, I have no idea how to pronounce that. It was shortened into a contraction. And then eventually continued to morph. God became good. They dropped the W out of it. And all of a sudden, there's a brand new word, goodbye. And what happened as that changed was that what once had a real depth of meaning, you know, God be with you, entrusting someone to the care of God as you go your separate way. There's a lot of meaning in that. Now all of a sudden just becomes a word that's transactional. You know, I will see you later, or I will never see you again. And that's really the depth <laughs> that exists in, in that word. We do something similar. We can uh, in, with Christian words and concepts. Uh, maybe we even did that a few minutes ago during passing the peace. Um, sometimes when we say peace to one another, we really mean what Steve did a great job articulating this morning, that we have peace with Christ, and may we together taste that peace in our relationship with each other. And sometimes it's like the verbal equivalent of like, what's up? You know, like a little nod, peace. There, there can be a range there, and it can lose its meaning. In a lot of his letters, Paul begins with this, these words, grace to you, peace to you. But these are never empty words when Paul says them in a letter like this. They're packed with meaning. And then verses 3 through 14 show us just how meaningful they actually are. And verse 3 specifically begins to identify the source of grace and peace, which is the triune God. And triune means three in one. We talk about the Trinity sometimes in, in Christian theology. And when we talk about the triune God, we're referring to the idea that God has eternally existed in three persons. One God and three persons. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, and there's God the Spirit. And what we see here in the first half of Ephesians 1 is that the riches of grace are poured out via the work of all three persons of the triune God. They're all involved in this in a very unified way, but each of the specific roles that they play is a little bit different. So, Pouring out his grace, every spiritual blessing being given to his people, that is something that is planned by God the Father in eternity past. Before the foundation of the world is the way that Paul says it there in verse 4. And we're going to talk more about that in just a second. It's accomplished by Jesus. This work is accomplished by Jesus, God the Son, through his perfect life, his substitutionary death in our place, and then his resurrection from the dead. And Paul summarizes that work of Jesus, which accomplishes this in verse 7 when he says, through his blood. This happens through Jesus' blood. And then all of that work is applied to us by God the Spirit. The Spirit acts as a seal or a deposit or a down payment, perhaps your translation says something like that, guaranteeing a future inheritance. The Holy Spirit is sometimes... Uh, jokingly referred to in some Christian circles as the drunk uncle of the Trinity. Have you ever heard him referred to as that? It's kind of like, yeah, he's there, uh, he's weird, and he's a little bit out of control. We don't really know what to do with him. So make of that what you will, okay? But the Holy Spirit is central to this. God the Spirit, as part of the triune God, is central to this. There's no way to experience every spiritual blessing in Christ apart from God the Spirit. And there's no way for the riches of God's grace to apply to us for that, that plan of God from eternity past, from that work of Jesus in his death and resurrection, to count on our behalf unless the Holy Spirit makes that count for us on our behalf. 
so all three, all three persons of, of God are involved in this. Now you'll notice in a few places in Ephesians chapter 1, phrases that show up like this. He chose us. He predestined us. And you're probably getting a little bit uncomfortable already with where that's going. Predestination, or election, as it's sometimes referred to, is, is, is speaking about God's choosing people as recipients of his grace, choosing people as recipients of his salvation from eternity past. Okay? And if you've been in the church for any kind of period of time, you're probably aware of this. It's a concept that's generated a lot of discussion and a lot of controversy in the history of the church. Controversy, uh, namely because this stirs up really difficult questions like, if God chooses people, you know, doesn't that mean that human beings are just robots? Doesn't that mean that as human beings, we don't really have any responsibility? We can't be held responsible for our actions. If God chooses people, then, then humans must be robots. Or, if God chooses people, why doesn't he choose all people? Like, why does he choose some people and not others? And I don't presume that I'm going to answer or, like, adequately speak to the, the questions or struggles that you might have with that this morning, primarily because there is an aspect of this that lives within the mystery of God and lives within the, the limitedness of our understanding as, as created human beings to understand the mystery of God and the way that he works. But Ephesians 1 is a really key passage. It's one of a couple in Scripture that talk about election or predestination. So let's at least wrestle with this for just a moment this morning. The first thing that we need to see is that this isn't like the invention of theologians like after the fact, in like the Reformation era. It isn't an invention of like the modern church movement. Paul, who is this apostle commissioned by Jesus, he says, God chooses people... Before the foundation of the world, he predestines them to experience his grace, to be adopted as sons. So we can't pretend this isn't there, right? We have to start there. We can't pretend this doesn't show up in Scripture. The question that always will come to mind relatively quickly for us is, you know, especially for those of us who are Christians, is, but don't we have to choose God? You know, don't we have to choose and make a decision to follow Jesus, to believe this? And in one sense, yeah, absolutely. You know, if you're a Christian, it's because... You have, you, if you're a Christian, you've made a conscious decision. And each of us has that decision to make. You know, whether we're going to embrace Jesus and his work and trust him as the source of our salvation or whether we're going to not do that and we're going to reject him. But what Paul says here multiple times is that before you and I ever have the opportunity to make that conscious choice, God, according to his purposes, has chosen us. And when this shows up in Scripture, this never negates or removes human responsibility. It never takes that away. And that's where we've just got to have some space in our hearts and some space in our minds for the mysterious ways of God. Because if you and I are to approach this merely with logic, it's never going to make sense. Like, can I free you from that? If you approach this merely with logic, it will never make 100% sense. And even 100% sense doesn't make sense. So there we go. It will seem as though either, if we think about it logically, either God chooses and therefore humans are robots, or it will seem that humans make a conscious decision and therefore God's not really in complete control of this, or some percentage division of labor involved in that. And what Scripture is going to say is God is 100% in control of all of this, 
and people are 100% responsible. How that makes sense logically, I don't know. But in all sincerity, I think that's as clear and definitive as we can get. And it's really as definitive and clear as I can get before my brain starts to hurt a little bit. It's a really complex topic. One of the most helpful illustrations for me, and, and I hope that it's helpful for you to understand this idea, is if you picture a doorway. If you picture a doorway, uh, if salvation is this doorway that people are meant to enter, you know, we enter into the kingdom of God, that's actually not too far of a stretch of an analogy. Jesus calls himself the door and the way and the narrow way. Then the message above the door, for those of us when we're, when we're not in the kingdom of God, the message above the door is repent and believe. It's repent and believe. That's the, the invitation, that's the offer that is held out to all of humanity. Repent of turning away from God and believe in the work of Jesus to restore you, to reconcile you to him. Okay, that's the, you hear the human responsibility in that. Repent and believe. And there's some people that do that and there's some people that don't. For the ones who do, as they walk through that door, as they walk through that door, they immediately look up and over that same doorway is now written something like Ephesians 1.4. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. It's the same doorway. It says repent and believe. You walk through it. You look up. It now says he chose you before the foundation of the world. In other words, these concepts, election and predestination, they explain how you got there. They explain how you got there. But it's never how God holds out the invitation to people. So you don't see like Jesus show up and do life and ministry or Paul travel around city to city in the Mediterranean saying something like, God has chosen some, but he's not chosen all. So those of you who are chosen, line up over here. And the rest of you, better luck next time. You, know? you, don't, hear, you don't hear that uh, in any of the ministry of Jesus or the ministry of Paul. And we have to remember that in Ephesians, Paul is writing to people who have already believed. He's writing to people who have already believed. And for people who have already believed, th- these concepts are meant to instill humility in us. They're meant to show us how much we needed to God we needed God to do this for us because we could never do it on our own. So what's the bottom line? You know, what's the bottom line in this? They are, they are weighty concepts. They're hard concepts to wrestle with. Why are they there? You know, why are they in Scripture if they're going to be hard to wrestle with, if we're never going to understand that mystery? They're there because they're meant to help us give all of the honor and all of the praise and all of the glory to God for the work of salvation. That's why this is there. We're meant to give all the credit to God and leave absolutely none of it for us. So, yes, you and I have a conscious decision before us, but in the ultimate eternal scope of things, did you choose God? No, God chose you. Did you receive Jesus? No, Jesus received you. Did you give your life to Jesus? No, Jesus gave his life to you. You hear the difference in those perspectives? One makes it seem like maybe we can hold on to a little bit of of responsibility for for getting there ourselves, however small that might be. But what Paul is trying to say here is that all of the credit is meant to go to God. And he's praising God throughout this passage, you know, multiple times, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of God's grace. He's praising God for the work that God has done in in saving him and the, the Ephesians. So what's the source of the riches of grace? Truly... Truly, it's God. Trace it all the way back to before the foundation of the world, and you've got God the Father choosing people 
to be adopted as his children. Focus in on the cross and Jesus, and in that pivotal moment within time and space, God the Son accomplishes salvation. And then zoom back out, trace that all the way to the fullness of time, as verse 10 puts it. And it's God the Spirit's seal upon his people that keeps them, that preserves them to fully acquire the possession of this inheritance. So from start to finish, God is the source of grace, the source of every spiritual blessing, and all three persons of the triune God are involved in that. So if that's the source, then second, let's talk about the substance. The substance. What are the riches of God's grace? What are these spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing which has been given to us? What, what is that? Well, there are a lot. There's much, there's, there are many aspects of that, and that's Paul's point here. And in the original language, verses 3 through 14 is actually one really long run-on sentence. If it sounds choppy, it's because it is choppy, in, in our, in our, even in our translation. It's one really long run-on sentence where you get the sense that Paul just can't contain himself anymore. He just can't keep it in, so it kind of explodes out of him. He's kind of like a kid who's had the best day of their young life. You know, you ask him how their day was, and they just rattle off one thing after another. We, you know, how was your day? Oh, it was great. We ate donuts, you know? We ate donuts and then went to an amusement park, and then we came home, we built forts, and then I rode the bumper cars at the amusement park. Do you remember that I was at the amusement park before? I rode those. And now uh, we saw some fireworks, my favorite are the blue fireworks, and then we had some ice cream, and I stayed up late. On and on and on. It doesn't really have even a, a great, like, logical, cohesive fit to it, other than it's Paul just erupting in praise of God because he can't keep it in anymore. Uh, a theologian named B.B. Warfield, about 100 years ago, said that Ephesians 1 actually should never be read in church. It should be only sung in church because there's just such a depth and richness in Ephesians chapter 1 that to, to capture the beauty of it requires poetry in that sense. So when we try to read it really logically, you know, scholarly, it kind of loses a lot of the depth that's, that's there. But as these words just pour out of Paul, he mentions many of the blessings that are found as the substance of God's grace. So let's just step through a couple of them, because this is just great news and hopefully encouraging to you. The first one is God's choosing. You know, God's choosing or predestination. We've already talked about that. But God's choosing is not just how we receive this. It's also part of the substance itself. It's also part of the gift itself. To be chosen for something is a huge affirmation. It's an affirmation of worth. It's an affirmation of value. You you get hired for a job or you get the part in the play or you get picked for the team. It's incredibly affirming. Well, how much more affirming is it that the God who created everything would choose you as his people? Now think of Abraham in the Old Testament. You know, not for any skill or merit or any reason that he had in and of himself, God says, I choose him. That's, that's my guy. That Through his family, I'm going to bless all nations of the earth. It's this huge privilege. It's an honor. And it's this gift that we are chosen by God. Paul says holiness and blamelessness is part of the, the gift, the riches of God's grace. There's a rhythm that, that we share in every time we gather on Sunday mornings. We've done it today. Where we begin our services looking at the holiness and the blamelessness of God. 
in a call to worship in our first songs that we sing together, we're looking at the holiness and perfection and blamelessness of God. And then we always transition from that into a time of confession. Why do we do that? It's because when we see the character and the nature of God, we also see the gap in our own life. We don't measure up to that. There's God in in an, an infinite direction in that way is us. We don't measure up. So we confess that gap to God and we experience his, his grace in that. But here's what Paul says. Part of God's choosing us means that we become holy and we become blameless. And this happens through the substitutionary work of Jesus. He takes our guilt and our pollution and he gives us his holiness and his blameless that he merited himself. So when God looks at us, he sees the holiness and blamelessness of Jesus, not our own guilt and our pollution. And then, that's where we stand positionally, but then, in his ongoing transformative work in our lives, he actually brings about the holiness and blamelessness in us. This process that continues every day, moment by moment, one degree of glory to another, until we see Jesus face to face. Adoption. Adoption is another one of these blessings in Christ. Once, we, we, hear, we read in Scripture, once our relationship with God was estranged. We were at enmity with God because of our sin. But the riches of God's grace means that through Jesus, God has brought you and bought you back into his family. Maybe some of you saw on social media this week, we're, we're celebrating and rejoicing with the Orlovsky family this week because they found out this week that in a few weeks from now, in early October... Hawkins' adoption is going to be finalized. They've been caring for him. He used to be named Carson. He's now being named Hawkin. Uh, he's going to be part of their family. That's, what does that mean? The beauty of that day is that he's, he's, on that day, he's no longer part of the social work system. You know? He's got a dad, and he's got a mom, and he's got a brother, and he's got a sister, and he's got a new family identity. Okay, that, in a very real way, is exactly what God's grace does for you and me. It gives us a new family identity. And Paul says that we're adopted as sons. And he says that for both men and women because in this culture, sons were the ones who actually received the inheritance. They were the ones with full rights in the family. And so Paul says, hey, both men and women, all of you through Jesus are adopted as sons into this new family of God. You have that access to God. You have the privileges of being a child of God, not an orphan any longer but in God's family. Redemption is another one. Redemption. Redemption through the blood of Jesus is what Paul says in verse 7. Redemption is this picture of being rescued or being brought back and bought out of the terrible conditions in which we find ourselves. For us, that's the guilt, that's the shame, that's the condemnation caused by our sin. You know, we have done that. We have sinned and rebelled against God. We can't change that. We're powerless to change it in and of ourselves. And then on top of that, we're surrounded by and polluted by the corruption of sin that exists in the other people and in just the world around us. So this just keeps compounding itself. It's within us. It's outside of us. It just compounds itself, enslaving us to sin. But by offering his own blood, Jesus buys us back out of that slavery. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Have you ever received a gift that's come with like a ton of conditions and strings attached to it? 
It's not, not your favorite gift to receive. You find out probably after the fact there were all these conditions associated with that. Or maybe you've been given something and then held, had that held over your head for like years to come. The person who gave it to you is like, hey, remember when I did that great thing for you? And you're like, yes, I get it. You know, that was 15 years ago. When the riches of his grace, not only does God buy us back and rescue us out of our condition, he forgives us for putting ourselves there and for creating the need to be bought back in the first place. Whose fault is it that we need to be bought back? It's ours. It's yours and mine. And then even more, he doesn't hold that over our head. He looks on our sin no more, and he separates our sin from us, the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. Forgiveness. Another one of these gifts is revelation, what God has revealed about himself. He says there in verse 9 that he has made known to us the mystery of his will, that he's revealed his plan for the fullness of time. Another way we could say this is that because of Jesus, we know the end of the story. Because of Jesus, we know where all of this is going. And for centuries prior, people knew that God was going to save his people and rescue them and bless them. They had glimpses, maybe, of how that was going to play out. But in Jesus, the mystery is made known. The mystery is made known, and it's great news. It's great news. It is God, through Jesus, repairing all that sin has fractured, uniting all things in Christ. In another letter, Paul's going to use a, uh, describe a similar concept by saying he'll reconcile the world to himself. He will bring everything back into its right relationship with God. We're not always aware of how much of a gift it is that we get to know the end of the story. I think we take that for granted often. But particularly in these moments, like I've been experiencing some this week, and maybe you are as well, where we're hyper-focused on the gaps between the ideal and reality, knowing the end of the story, knowing that because of Jesus, God will undo what sin has broken. It puts those gaps into the right perspective. Those gaps don't dictate life, right? God's grace does. And so the gaps that we experience, however substantial they are, they're temporary, right? And the the grace of God is what is eternal. The last one I'm going to mention this morning is an inheritance. What what is every spiritual blessing? What are the, the riches of God's grace? There's an inheritance. God gives us an inheritance. Now, you and I are material people, you know, and we live in a very material culture. The West, the United States, we're very materialistic. And because of that, when we hear the word inheritance, our mind immediately goes to something monetary, property, something like that. But what is this inheritance to which Paul is referring when he says that you will be given an inheritance in the family of God? It's God himself. It's God himself. The riches of God's grace... Being blessed with every spiritual blessings means, at the end of the day, that we get God. We get God. The good news of the gospel is that we get God. So God doesn't do all of this work to only, in the end, give us something different. There's actually nothing better that he possibly could give us besides himself. So God pours out his grace on us now and to the day that we get the full inheritance. And the full inheritance is just more of him. It's him in perfection, in perfected, completely reconciled relationship. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the definition of what it means to have every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
to experience the riches of God's grace is that in the end, we get God himself. Now let me tell you what I hope that we walk away with this morning. I hope that in getting to just consider the source and the substance of the riches of grace, that you would read Paul's introduction again. That you would read verse 2 of Paul's introduction again where he says, grace to you and peace to you. And that you would really believe that those aren't empty words, but that there really is grace and that there really is peace for you. Because there really is. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes it's hard to actually grasp that and believe that. And I like the idea of grace and peace in theory. I believe that. I like grace and peace for other people, but when I'm hyper-focused on the gaps, there's no grace or peace for me. I, don't, I, I wrestle and struggle to believe that there really is grace and peace for me because all I can see in those moments are the gaps. But what I hope you see in this, regardless of what your life looks or feels like this morning, that this is true for all who have believed. You know, Paul writes this letter to people that he doesn't even really know. He definitely doesn't know them that well. He maybe doesn't even know them at all. We'll find out later in the letter. And he says that all of them, all of you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. The the riches of God's grace have been lavished upon you. So he can't possibly be talking about their material and their physical conditions when he says that. He, He would have no idea what those conditions are for the vast majority of the people that he's writing to. But he does know his own life. And he does know his own conditions. Failing eyesight and this aging, broken down body that at this point in his life has quite literally taken a beating for three decades. You know, you read Paul's life and his journeys. He gets beaten all the time. And he's had some friends abandon him at this point in his life. He's had some people stick with him. He's had some friends abandon him in his life. And now he's sitting in chains in Rome, and he's unsure of when and how he's going to die, but he's very aware of the possibility and probability of his death coming very soon. And yet, he says about these Ephesian people in his own life, that life is not dictated by those circumstances, but by the grace and peace of God from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So there's grace and peace for Paul and for the Ephesians, and there really is grace and peace for you. So whatever gap it is that you're acutely aware of in your life, you know, you're, you've, you're in a really difficult financial spot. You can't make ends meet. There's a giant gap that you see there. Um, maybe your marriage is in a really bad place where you've got a lot of damaged and broken relationships in your life right now. Maybe you're sick uh, and you're suffering physically and you just long to be healed. You long to not have that ailment anymore. Or maybe you're consumed with your own doubts and your own anxieties and depression. And whatever and wherever you wrestle with those discouragements and the cynicism that comes with it and those gaps between the ideal and reality, let us see this morning not only what is missing in our lives, let's instead also see what is true of us because of the riches of God's grace. That he's chosen and that he's purified and he's adopted and redeemed and forgiven so that we might today and forever obtain him as this glorious inheritance for all of time.
So may we live in the grace and in the peace of Jesus. And like Paul, may we perceive that grace and peace and may our hearts just overflow with run-on sentences of worship and awe because of that amazing work that God has done. Amen. Let's pray. God, the, the work that you have done and are doing uh, has no end. And it has no end to how it can renew and revive us. And we confess in our fickleness and in our, as we confess together this morning in our prayer of confession, we're so fast to forget. We're so fast to forget this. We're so fast to live our lives, so quick to, to live our lives in a way that, that this hasn't been true, that you haven't poured out your grace on us in Jesus, that you haven't given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. So I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to not ignore the gaps, to not be, um, to not be people who uh, pretend like there aren't hardships and sorrows and suffering in life, but that the gaps would have incredible meaning because they fit within the bigger picture of your grace and the story of your grace that has been from eternity past and will be to eternity future. May our perspectives, Jesus, and you have to do this work in us because we can't. May our perspectives be shaped by your grace and not by what we lack and not by the gaps in our life. And even as we come, may this table be an opportunity where we see that your work has accomplished this, that by your blood we have been redeemed, we've been forgiven, that you have lavished your grace on us. Meet us where we are this morning, Jesus. Stir in us the kind of affection that Paul bursts forth with in these words. And I pray this in your name. Amen.